Well, it looks a very rainy house this morning, so we are very lucky to be in a human building, I think. <laughs> the house of the soul has its storms. You'll forgive me for sitting down. It's a fairly long paper, longer than my introductory remarks at least, and uh, it is a great help not to be standing. Can you hear at the back quite well? I'm going to move this a little away so that I can turn the pages. Can you hear now? Right. If there is one theme upon which I, upon which any human being, should be able to speak without learning, without authority other than our own senses and innate understanding, it is surely nature. For nature, all that we perceive and of which we are ourselves a part and which is a part of us, is what each is given along with life itself. No need to be a poet or a physicist, painter, botanist, astronomer, hunter of animals, gardener, fisherman, alchemist or magician, weatherman, assessor of minerals or physician. No need to be literate or numerate. It is enough to be a child. The rest are but a few of the countless ways we follow into that inexhaustible universe of marvels into which we are born. Never will we reach nature's frontiers. Never can we be elsewhere than at its center. I have myself read countless books, innumerable pages of human thoughts, but in this attempt to approach nature, I shall try at the outset not to remember, but to forget these. I shall not even cite Lawrence van der Post's African Bushman or the North American or Australian indigenous people, although these, nature being their only literacy, could tell more than perhaps any man of learning of nature and its many powers. Instead, I shall try to begin by speaking not from any acquired knowledge, much or little counts for nothing at all in this respect. But solely as the child I was, the child each of us was, born into this world without any of the adventitious aids of what we later in life call knowledge. Did not the learned Thomas Aquinas call his great work of theology so much straw in the light of that vision of reality itself which came to him at the end of his years of labor? He spoke of a mystical vision. I speak only of what every child sees who opens his eyes on this world. But in the light of the morning sunshine falling on a leaf or raindrop, whether on the loveliest of gardens or wild places, or on a plastic container on a scrap heap, I too would have to say that all I have studied is so much straw. However much we have learned, what is given to every child at birth, unsought, is incomparably, immeasurably more. Given with life itself, inseparable from what we are, we have no need to learn or study that on which our eyes open, our ears hear, our fingers touch. We have only to look and to listen. Rather than understanding nature better by learning more, we have to unlearn, to unknow, if we hope to recapture a glimpse of that paradisal vision of childhood. 
Nature is vision, epiphany, indeed theophany. It is the discourse of life itself as it shows itself in and through the myriad forms of the natural world. She is also a veiled goddess, whose veil, according to an ancient inscription in Sais, no man has lifted. But nature is not the kind of mystery that can be solved, as in a Sherlock Holmes story, in which something that at first seemed marvelous and even awe-inspiring proves to be something simple and trivial. On the contrary, the investigator may remove veil after veil, but the scientist, be he the manipulator of genetic codes or the astrophysicist concerned with origins and causes, can come no nearer to seeing the face of the veiled goddess than did her worshippers in ancient Egypt. Nature as Blake understood the symbol of the veiled goddess, so ancient, so archetypal, is the veil. In Indian terms, nature is maya, appearances. That veil has no substantial existence other than as the expression on the face of being, or as Plotinus understood, a mirror in which the soul sees itself. According to the myth of Cupid and Psyche, nature is the house of the generated soul in which Psyche's attendants and servants are the elements and creatures of the natural world. It is not my intention to denigrate the study of nature in whatever form. Her field of marvels extends before us in whatever direction we travel. As a student, I set out to become a botanist, and whatever little I learned of the world of plants has only served to enrich the vision of the poet. Nevertheless, it must be said that the presuppositions of science, our modern materialist science, that is, being purely quantitative and factual, in themselves tend to devaluate the very marvels the scientist sets out to study. That is not, of course, to say that the study of nature in terms of number, as Keith has so beautifully demonstrated to us, in the sacred sense of number, as this was understood by Pythagoras and Plato, Plato is itself a purely quantitative study, for nature has been studied within many contexts. Many scientists, being human, no doubt have retained a sense of wonder and awe. But it must be said that if a renewal of the sacred is a need of our civilization so essential that it is becoming clear to ever-increasing numbers of people that we cannot go on as we are, it is because the quantitative scientific approach to nature and this is the basis of our modern Western civilization, excludes, indeed precludes, the experience and therefore the knowledge of the sacred in its most immediate form as the presence before our eyes of the natural universe. In this sense, modern science, which claims to be the study of nature, leads us away from, not nearer to, a true and full knowledge of the universe and its 10,000 creatures. In our modern Western or Westernized society, science is equated with knowledge in a kind of idolatry. 
whereas the arts are seen as more or less agreeable relaxations and religion as a private matter about which everyone has the right to his own opinion since religion and the arts lie outside the realm of verifiable facts and are in that sense not to be taken seriously. Clearly such a view will no longer do. The scientist's knowledge of nature and account of nature is a partial one. It is not a total or an adequate knowledge. Adequate to what? Clearly in relation to our humanity, since human nature is the limiting factor of all knowledge whatsoever, scientific knowledge not accepted. What we are limits and determines what we can know. This is not to call in question the usefulness of empirical science in its own field, but a reminder that our humanity at once sets the bounds of science, while at the same time opening it to vast regions outside and beyond those bounds. Nor am I calling in question the value of scientific description and mapping of the phenomena of nature, but merely the right of science to present itself as knowledge of nature as against the experience of nature in terms of meanings and values. Nature can be weighed and measured, and science is essentially quantification, but it can be known in other ways, in terms not of measurable facts, but of immeasurable values. And that realm of immeasurable values belongs to the world of poetry and the arts, or should I put it the other way, poetry and the arts belongs to the realm of immeasurable values. Vision, and we must include everyday vision of all who open their eyes on this world, can be experienced but cannot be quantified. Vision, epiphany, theophany belongs to an order not recognized within the terms of our positivist culture. It is the discourse, the revelation of life as it shows itself in and through the myriad forms of the natural world. Nature is no less the house of our spiritual than of our bodily life, and it is for this reason that poets and all other artists, besides each of us simply because we are able to enjoy and contemplate as well as to consume the world, have the right to be heard, to speak against the blind destruction in the name of utility of the living earth, which is our book of wisdom, our spiritual home, our revelation of the divine face. One may, might see the scientific method as grounded in the part observing the whole from the standpoint of its separation. Science observes that of which we are in reality, or from another standpoint, a part, as an object that is a separate and other. This can yield knowledge of a certain kind, objective knowledge of nature. Yet one might see presumption in the attempt itself of the part to pronounce on the whole, as if human reason alone possessed knowledge and were the supreme and sole arbiter in an otherwise mindless universe. If not inherent in the scientific method as such, it is certain that such attitudes have grown up alongside this secular mode of thought. So... 
in order to rediscover the experience of nature that underlies all later uses and theories, we must go back to something more primordial, pristine, innate. Is it possible to remember back to the kind of knowledge we had of our world before inner and outer became separate, before nature became an object about which we had questions to ask, wishes to satisfy all those human curiosities and wants and needs that lead us to put nature to our own uses and purposes? to a time when we had no questions to reduce wonder to curiosity, delight to greed of possession, fear to the desire to destroy. Can we recall the face of the world as we first looked upon it and it upon us? Is this knowledge of being that the artist seeks a knowledge not of something other but a kind it is Sorry, it is this knowledge of being that the artist seeks, a knowledge not of something other, but a kind of self-knowledge. What is our own earliest memory? Mine is, or seems to be, yours, no doubt. I would ask you to recall yours, not mine. But mine is looking up into a multitude of pink small flowers. Later I knew the name of the bush, a flowering current. And the aspect of that flowering tree returns to me with the impression of seeing each subtle detail of flower and petal, an impression of beautiful precision of form, an unsurprised total perception of something not at all strange, recognized as it were. It was there, a total presence. Later, as I learned the flowers in my mother's garden and in the waste places and by the roadsides, it seems to me that each was a recognition of form, totally apprehended, fivefold before I could count five, symmetrical before I could double or treble, simply and totally present. There was no learning but simply seeing. Birds and animals were instantaneous visions of creatures that appeared in all their magical panoply of wings and eyes with a quality of unquestioned knowledge before flowers had names or flames or raindrops running down a window pane. Later life has only made all these familiar things remote. They were never so known as before I knew anything at all. I recall a passage in Coleridge in which he tells how he carried his baby son out into the night to look at the moon. Coleridge himself loved the moon with a kind of passion. And at the sight of that primordial wonder, the baby stopped crying. Why should looking at the moon or at a glittering colored ball on a Christmas tree stop a baby's crying? You cannot eat the moon. It gives neither warmth nor food. Why does the light of the moon please a baby? If this question seems a foolish one, I have failed to lead you towards the mystery of that primordial, not-to-be-analyzed experience of all human, perhaps of all sentient beings, of the light of the world. 
18th century philosophers, and I'm thinking especially of Blake's enemy Locke, saw the infant mind as a tabula rasa, receiving all its knowledge through sense impressions. Therefore, the infant mind had to be formed by education. The theory has lingered on in the 20th century American theory of behaviorism, which speaks of conditioning our responses. These can be manipulated, no doubt, or why is money spent on advertising? But what then are those first clear impressions, so ineffaceable, so intimately known and recognized and understood? What is it that we know when we first see our first flowering tree, our first bird, moon, pebbles on the path, running water, our first pheasant in a wood, cat, cups hanging on a dresser, pansy face. We know them not from learning by experience, but with a total and immediate recognition. We do not need to know about them in order to know them, as if they spoke to some knowledge innate in us. Nature's marvels tell themselves as words in a language. The poetry of nature is not the words we write about nature. It is all that the language of nature makes known to us. And if you know Jeremy Reed's poetry, you will see that this is what a nature poet like Jeremy is able to do for us, make nature speak again to us within that primordial language still known to a few poets. It is as if we can perhaps claim no more. Knower and known, light and sight, seer and seen are from the first inseparable. By the materialist science of recent centuries, nature and consciousness have long been held to be separate. Yeats, near the end of his life, foresaw and predicted that in two or three generations it will become generally known that the mechanical theory has no reality, that the natural and supernatural are knit together. His prophecy has already been fulfilled, and few scientists would now claim otherwise than for purposes of convenience that the measurable world can be separated from the mind of the observer. The mechanical theory of nature is now an obsolete hypothesis, and the unus mundus, the unity of mind and nature sought by the early Renaissance thinkers, is once again becoming credible. And if inner and outer are indeed knit together, knowledge is inherent in and inherited with that of which we are made, knower and known, nature and we who perceive it, are one and the same. All our knowledge of nature is in reality self-knowledge, unnamed and unnameable. The knower unerringly totally experiences the shell or flower or bird or tree. Inner and outer are attuned to this fundamental recognition which is at once innate knowledge of the other we call nature. And that from the dawn of consciousness. 
However we may regard that aspect of time which we call evolution, it is a term which in a time world we must use descriptively whether or not we share the materialist view of natural causality. Most of us here, I imagine, do not share that view, but it is nonetheless true that we are situated in time. According to the Orphic Theogony, time, with its serpent revolutions and its lion's devouring mouth, is the first created of the gods who control this world. Plato calls time a moving image of eternity, and that motion is time. Viewing time in this sense as the mode in which we experience the ever-present, how inconceivably old we are. When, using the word when, in relation to the timeless origin of time, did our consciousness begin? When did the matter of which our physical frames are composed begin? There is no break in the totality of being, in the continuity of nature, from the fiat lux, the timeless fiat lux of creation. Modern science too sees light as the origin of all that has followed in the continuity of nature, in its work of formation, transformation, Goethe's words, of which we like wave crests in an unending sea are moments. The life in us derives from an immemorial past. It has never not been, it will never not be. Indeed, beginning and ending are terms of temporal succession, which is only as the whole manifestation of creation appears to our physical senses. But whether we conceive that totality as unending time or as a boundless now, we are indivisibly woven into that one, that all. We are what nature has generated, nature which is what we know not by observation but because nature is what we are and we are nature's knowledge and self-knowledge, an unfathomable knowledge that is inseparable from being. Inconceivably ancient is this self-knowledge of being, older than memory, older than history, than man, than the animals or earliest living organisms who were our first selves. Do we not go back to the rocks, to the water, to fire, to the first created light? Differentiated and individualized as we are, our life is rooted in the boundless, timeless, beginningless and unending whole which we know as nature. Where do we ourselves begin and end? Earth, air, fire and water flow continually through us. They enter us and leave us, and our bodies are no more ourselves or ours than the flame of a candle perpetually consuming and renewing itself. And in this unbroken continuity with the entire manifestation we know as nature, just as we may say that we are a part of its whole, so equally may we say that it is a part of our whole. For we are not limited, we are not parts and divisions except in appearance. We contain within our field of being whatever is or presents itself to us, not as something outside and other than ourselves, but just as our bodies are continuous with the elements, so is all that visible, audible, all that is visible, audible, tangible to us, continuous with our total field of knowledge, our total consciousness.
It was this realization which underlay the ancient conception of the soul of the world, the anima mundi of the Platonists, continued in the Western esoteric tradition, which refused the mechanistic science, which nevertheless gradually has gained ground in the 17th and 18th centuries and remains current in our own, even if no longer unquestioned among even the scientists themselves. Perhaps most of all among the scientists themselves, for popular ideologies lag behind. Blake himself, an inheritor of this other tradition, wrote of the wrenching apart of inner and outer, nature and the soul, as a mutilation which deprives nature of its informing life and at the same time banishes humanity from a living universe. For nature so externalized becomes a machine, a, mechan a mechanism, not a presence, not a being. And finally, we have come to see ourselves as parts within that machine, a meaningless accident in a mindless universe. One hears such things said on the radio and the television, and behaviorism is one still current example in all seriousness, which to earlier and other civilizations would have been seen as the reductio ad absurdum of all meaning and discussion forever. Um, the painter Francis Bacon actually has put it in writing on record it was you John who sent me the quotation we all know that man is an accident in the universe and that art is a mere game this is where we've come to these things are said Yeats in our own century took up the theme from his master Blake when he challenged the view of man as passive before a mechanized nature According to the alternative view, that of the Platonists and their successors, including uh, large elements, of, including Christianity, one must say, including the poets of imagination, Coleridge, Shelley, Blake, and Yeats, imagination is the living and creative power itself. In reality, Neither the observer nor the object are the absolutes the materialist view has long presumed them to be. Blake understood this very well when he wrote, The sun's light, when he unfolds it, depends on the organ that beholds it. Plotinus had said the same, We are able to behold the sun because there is a sun-like nature in the eye which sees it. Other civilizations, and I think above all of India, recognize that consciousness is itself a variable whose range can contract or expand. It is not the invariable constant rationalist thinkers have supposed. Indeed, in other civilizations, effort has been directed not to the manipulation of nature, as in the modern West, but to the enlarging of consciousness, of the mind which perceives. Blake's reply to Locke, for whom the mind of a child was a blank page for the reception of sense impressions, was to speak not of the observed object, but of the faculty which experiences. And for him, for the man of imagination, nature is, Blake's words, one continued vision of fancy or imagination. He who sees the infinite in all things sees God, Blake wrote. He who sees the ratio only sees himself only. The ego, that is. 
Not only the organs of sense, but the state of mind of the observer, changes of mood which fluctuate continually, and more radical changes of consciousness, of which Eastern uh, philosophies are well aware, and of which, in the West, the cruder method of psychedelic drugs has somewhat brutally reminded us. Whereas the modern West has sought to manipulate nature in ways increasingly violent, desecrational and obscene, the East, on the contrary, has given its thought principally to the control and expansion of consciousness itself. Only in this century are we becoming aware of the relativity of nature to our perception of it, not merely through changes in our sense organs, but through far more subtle variations in our mental awareness. Visionary transformations of consciousness, such as nature mystics have reported, are probably more common than has been recognized in a culture that has no place for the knowledge of such change the knowledge such changes of perception imply. They cannot, of course, be checked or weighed or measured with a machine. There can be few of us who have not at some time seen the world undergo some miraculous transformation whose source lies in ourselves. Here I speak from the experience of having witnessed half a lifetime ago the sudden but unforgettable transformation of a plant on my table before my eyes into a flow of living light, which was at the same time not separate from myself, was indeed a living part of myself. The experience was one of perceiving what can only be described as the holy, At the same time, I was aware that I was seeing more, not less, of the reality that was present before me than in my normal state. My mother, in her late old age, told me of having herself had a similar experience as a young girl, which she had never forgotten. I saw, she said, that the world was alive. Can we not call in question from such experiences, and I do not doubt that many present here could report the like, the very premises of naive materialism? To those who see nature as an object, can we not reply that nature is an experience? It is not the conclusions of Western materialism, but its premises which are in question. That is only an extreme, although not so very rare example, of the variability of our experience of nature. But to put it more simply, and without recourse to the exceptional states of the nature mystic, authentic as these may be, common as these may be, how can we suppose that our capacity to feel, delight and fear, to wonder, to marvel, to experience pity and terror, the mysterious and various experiences of beauty and meaning innate in us, could conceivably be there? unless appropriate to our situation in this world and without any objective correlative. Objectivity is a scientific virtue, perhaps, a detached scrutiny of the object to be weighed and measured, but if the world of nature were the mechanism supposed by a materialist science, then all the great range and gamut of human responses would become meaningless.' 
When this happens, what but alienation, violence and mental breakdown can be expected, as indeed we see on all sides? Because we possess these faculties, they must be appropriate to our world, and those aspects of nature which inspire and match them speak to us of realities of the soul which they serve to awaken. And of this discourse, poetry and the other arts is the language, matching images given every day before our eyes to the whole range of meanings and values to which these symbols give access. All too much modern Western, above all modern English, so-called nature poetry, is a byproduct of Western materialist science, meticulous descriptions of the visible aspect of some landscape or plant or creature, a matching of descriptive word, or in a painting matching color for color to scale or fin, a kind of photography. In fact, the camera, a mechanism, is the true eye of the machine age and of a materialist ideology, a mechanism that can reproduce the sensible appearance of mountain or desert, fish or lion or rose, of all those natural creatures that have from time immemorial been the images by which poets and painters have evoked the whole scale of meanings and emotions. As for the description, our machines can do that for us. What then can the imagination see in nature that the camera cannot? I have suggested that for childhood knowledge is being. We, what we know is what we are by participation, by empathy, and by reading the language of nature. The imagination knows nature from within before we stray away and become separate and cut off from it, mere observers scrutinizing from without what formerly we knew from within, looking out, as Blake says, through narrow chinks of his cavern. Have we not all the memory of having once been inside nature, as it were, instead of wandering on the outside, looking for a door through which to find our way back to our nature, native place or state? We try to recapture that living experience in which we knew nature not as an object, a thing, but as a living presence. Blake understood that through the materialist ideology we have lost access to the living experience of nature and describes that cold rationalist mind for whom a rock, a cloud, a mountain were now not vocal as in climes of happy eternity where the lamb replies to the infant voice and the lion to the man of years giving them sweet instructions where the cloud, the river and the field talk with the husbandman and shepherd. Cloud and river and field express meanings which cannot be measured or quantified. Our universe is a living universe, and Blake's child and shepherd live in a state of continuous communication with its presence, something we have perhaps all known at one time. Has not the blackbird sung to us a music we understood? Some, like Blake, have never lost that sense of paradisal participation. Samuel Palmer's Shoreham, his valley of vision, for a few years opened itself to his painter's devotion. We are mistaken when we think of nature poetry as conferring meaning upon nature. Rather, nature is itself the language of the true poetry of the universe to which the poet listens. 
sun and stars, trees, clouds, birds, every creature are words in the language which the universe speaks itself. The pre-literate Bushmen of Africa, the Australian Aborigines and all children know that language in which all that exists in nature has meaning and value. We witness an unending discourse of the spirit of creation, but we no longer look, no longer listen as we speed along motorways in our machines, insulate ourselves from the music of the wind or waves and leaves and rain with transistor radio sets that shut out this unceasing sacred discourse. Yet when at moments we attend, is it not with a sense of homecoming? And I think that after Jocelyn Godwin's demonstration, you know exactly what I mean. And it has been suggested that we close this conference by singing the music of humanity once again. Well, let us look finally at some instances of the greatest nature poetry that has been written, far indeed from the photographic descriptive writing of modern secular poetry. When the psalmist wrote, I will lift mine eyes to the hills whence cometh my help, he was not describing the appearance of the hills, but an essential imaginative experience of something every culture has expressed in countless myths of the hills and mountains being places high above human sorrows, immaculate places where no foot has trod, where the gods live, be it on Olympus, Mount Kailasa, or the Hopi Amerindian sacred mountain now called San Francisco where of late their modern white successors have built a ski slope. Western man climbs mountains in order to conquer nature, a notion far from those to whom they were holy places of imaginative power, symbols of the highest meanings and values attainable to us. Those who lived on their foothills were pilgrims and holy men, none trespassed on their sacred summits. Santosh gave us a glimpse of the great sun temple of Kanarak and the sacred dance practiced there in honor of that great god Surya who rises from the sea to drive his chariot daily across the world. The temple is built in the form of a chariot drawn by those famous horses. In the chariot are all created beings, from the animals, the nagas, men and women, to angelic beings. Apollo, too, drove his son chariot, coming out of the east, as the Bible also has it, as a bridegroom cometh forth from his chamber, ready for to run his race. The son is a living being. As for Blake, who, when he claimed that he saw the spiritual son, was asked by some pragmatic Englishman, What, when you see the sun rise, do you not see a round disc somewhat like a guinea? And the poet replied, Oh, no, no, I see an innumerable company of the heavenly host singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When I was a child, I remember singing a hymn, heaven forbid, forgive me, with the line, the heathen in his blindness bows down to wood and stone, idolatry. 
But now I wonder if our own civilization is not the most idolatrous there has ever been, being the first to have worshipped matter and imputed to it the causes of universal life. Or take the wind, again in the Bible. The wind is the vehicle of the Holy Spirit, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. The wind is the breath of life, its spiritual power indivisibly one with its nature. What is said of the wind could equally be said of the spirit. John the Baptist, the prophet in the desert, inspired by the spirit, is called a reed shaken by the wind. In St. John's Gospel again, wind and spirit are one and indivisible. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, and thou canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was perceived by the disciples of Jesus as the sound of a mighty wind. As in the Bible, so in the Vedas. This passage from the Rig Veda, translated by Raimundo Panikkar, again is not a simile which merely compares wind with the Holy Spirit. The two are inseparably one in the sublime language of nature, which is the vehicle of sacred meaning. Oh, the wind's chariot, its power and its glory, it passes by crashing. Out streak the lightnings, dust rises on the earth, the wind passes. The hosts of the wind speed onward after him like women assembling. The king of the world lifts them up in his chariot through lofty regions. He speeds on the air's pathways. He rests not nor slumbers for even a day. Firstborn, the water's friend, the righteous, whence came he? How was he born? Breath of the gods and life germ of the universe, freely he wanders. We bring him our homage, whose voice may be heard, but whose form is not seen. As with wind, so with fire, water, cloud, trees, forests, seas and rivers, all these in ancient poetry of whatever quarter of the world are the profound language of meanings, as humanity discovered these in an endless dialectic of inner experience, seeking, as it were, asking for, as Coleridge writes, its natural symbol. The alchemical teaching of the Smeragdine table of Hermes Trismegistus, that which is above is like that which is beneath, and that which is beneath is like that which is above, to work the unity of one thing, um, is the underlying principle of the alchemical theory of signatures, and which has application in many fields. Uh, uh, Philip, I know, objected to that quotation, but I suggest that he quoted only the beginning, which divides the above from the beneath and, for, and, and omitted the last passage, which is to work the unity of one thing. 
According to this view of nature, in total contradiction to the mechanistic theory, everything in nature, every herb, animal, metal, gem, natural element, or part of the human body, since microcosm mirrors macrocosm, has its correspondence in an order of causes on high, above, popularly known as the stars, but of course not in a mechanistic sense, the stars themselves being yet one more region of the imagination expressed in the language of nature. The Kabbalistic tree of God is another powerful symbol expressing the unity of all things. The roots of this tree are above, its branches and fruits below. Yet the divine spirit circulates through the whole of manifested being, no less present in the lowest, the material world, than in the unapproachable source. God is in the lowest effects, as in the highest causes, Blake says, and he is speaking from within that tradition, which he knew in several forms, all alike in their rejection of the mechanistic universe. Quite recently, Gaston Bachelard, the French phenomenologist, found his way back into the world of nature as a language of meanings and wrote those illuminating books on the four elements, L'eau et les rêves, L'air et les songes, and the rest, explorations of the rich correspondences of which poetry of imagination is full. Shelley's skylark soaring in the air is not described feather by feather and bone by bone, but carries the spirit of the beholder into the heavens of song. Edgar Allan Poe's sombre waters mirror the melancholy of the poet's death wish. Nietzsche's amount... Uh, Nietzsche's mountains summoned a conquest, and the acorn cup and small snail shell are nature's secret hiding places and refuges. In imagination we hide in acorn cups like Shakespeare's fairies, move with wave and river and cloud, enter strange pure worlds of weightless, weightless reflections on water, finding throughout nature the correspondences of every mood. At every moment nature itself, presenting to us its chasms and heights, its flux and its shadows, evokes in us those correspondences through which we come to know ourselves, and the artists and poets are the interpreters of the language nature presents continually to the soul. For throughout the materialist centuries it was the poet's of Swedenborg, whose correspondences were a heritage from the alchemical signatures. Every creature, according to Swedenborg, is a living spirit whose bodily form is a correspondence of its living nature, all of them embodiments of spirits of different orders and capacities. Wordsworth is on the whole a Newtonian, describing nature as he perceived it, though with magnificent exceptions, whereas for Blake, all nature is alive, and I will read you this passage. Thou seest the constellations in the deep and wondrous night. They rise in order and continue their immortal courses upon the mountain and in vales with harp and heavenly song. With flute and clarion, with cups and measures filled with foaming wine. Glittering the streams reflect the visions of beatitude, and the calm ocean joys beneath and smooths his awful waves. 
These are the sons of loss, and these the laborers of the vintage. Thou seest the gorgeous clothed flies that dance and sport in summer upon the sunny brooks and meadows. Every one the dance knows in its intricate mazes of delight, artful to weave, each one to sound his instruments of music in the dance, to touch each other and recede, to cross and change and return. These are the children of loss. Thou seest the trees on mountains uttering prophecies and speaking instructive words to the sons of men. These are the sons of loss, these the visions of eternity. But we see only, as it were, the hem of their garments when with our vegetable eyes we view these wondrous visions. Loss is, of course, for those of you who don't know, Blake's Spirit of the Living Imagination. And uh, I hope you note that these creatures all have their music. Shelley, too, had his west wind, which he summoned, invoked in terms not far from those of the Vedas. Wild spirit which art moving everywhere, destroyer and preserver, here. Oh, hear, and the poet prays to that spirit to make me thy lyre, even as the forest is. Shelley had read the Bhagavad Gita and other Indian texts, so indeed had Blake, and of course Yeats, who acknowledges the works of both these poets among his sacred books. And last of all, we come to the fullest, clearest statement of the alternative understanding of nature, alternative, that is, to the secular materialist view, that of the Vedas, of the Upanishads, and the Gita. Everything that lives is holy, Blake wrote. What does he mean? A mechanism is by definition lifeless, but every manifestation of life, every guise assumed by the living self of the universe, Blake's imagination, whom he identifies with Jesus, the divine presence in man, can be so described because it can be so experienced. For the holy, the sacred, is an experience, not the quality, the quality of an object. Only as such can it be known. The alternative to nature as mechanism is nature as theophany, which of course brings us back to what Philip said on the first day, nature as theophany. What we have experienced we know. What else is knowledge? So in that chapter of the Mahabharata, which dates from some 1,500 years before our era, known as the Bhagavad Gita, the Lord Krishna, manifesting himself as the friend and charioteer of the Pandava warrior Arjuna, gave the teaching. It is the self, the universal mind or spirit, unborn and undying, who, in the words of Krishna, answers Arjuna's question. Arjuna asks, What is nature, what is matter, and what is the self? What is that they call wisdom? And Krishna answers, O Arjuna, the body of man is the playground of the self. And that which knows the activities of matter, sages call the self. I am the omniscient self that abides in the playground of matter, 
knowledge of matter and of the all-knowing self, is wisdom. The Lord Krishna speaks of the great truth which man ought to know, since by its means he will win immortal bliss, that which is without beginning, the eternal spirit which dwells in me, neither with form nor yet without it. Everywhere are its hands and its feet, everywhere it has eyes that see, heads that think and mouths that speak. Everywhere it listens, it dwells in all the worlds, it envelops them all. Beyond the senses it yet shines through every sense perception. Bound to nothing it yet sustains everything. Unaffected by its qualities, it still enjoys them all. The supreme self is the one life of the universe and also the life of man, the microcosm. And in the poem I read you last night from Vernon Watkins on Taliesin, you will see how the same conception of the immortal spirit which transmigrates and passes through the universe continually is embodied in the much simpler, less metaphysically developed Celtic conception of Taliesin the spirit of poetry itself. Now this does not, in my way of seeing it, constitute pantheism in the sense of understanding God to be merely the sum of whatever is in nature, a notion which is itself coloured by a mechanistic model of the natural universe and probably very largely projected upon Indian thought by Western thinkers, by which the concept of the divine person implies a demiurge who makes worlds as a workman makes tables and chairs. The supreme self of the Vedanta, the mind of the Hermetica, Burma's and Blake's imagination of God is a person in, the sense, in a sense far otherwise, is the ultimate Satchit Ananda, being consciousness bliss of life itself. Not matter, but living being is the ultimate ground, and since consciousness belongs to living mind, a person. The natural world is a manifestation of eternal being, a living universe and not an object. This, however, is not to say that the divine self does not also transcend what we can know as nature. And I quote again the words of the Lord Krishna. It is only a very small part of my eternal self, which is the life of this universe, drawing round itself the six senses, the mind the last, which have their source in nature. When the Supreme Lord enters a body or leaves it, he gathers these senses together and travels on with them as the wind gathers perfume while passing through the flowers. There are two aspects in nature, the perishable and the imperishable. All life in this world belongs to the former. The unchanging element belongs to the latter. But higher than all am I, the supreme God, the absolute self, the eternal Lord who pervades the worlds and upholds them all. Had Shelley too remembered the Bhagavad Gita, together with the Platonic philosophers, when in Hellas he made his sage Ahasuerus speak of the one, the unborn and the undying. 
earth and ocean, space and the isles of life or light that gem the sapphire floods of interstellar air, this firmament pavilioned upon chaos with all its cressets of immortal fire, this whole of suns and worlds and men and beasts and flowers with all the silent or tempestuous workings by which they have been, are, or cease to be, is but a vision. Thought is its cradle and its grave, nor less the future and the past are idle shadows of thought's eternal flight. They have no being, naught is but that which feels itself to be. These and like words speak, I suggest, the ultimate understanding of what nature is. Nor is such knowledge inaccessible, demanding some special knowledge possessed by few. No, it is a vision innate in all, those thoughts of men that have been hid of old, of which Blake writes, the vision of infancy before epiphany is obscured by ideology. So understood, nature is the house not of the body alone but of the soul, the source not only of physical sustenance, but beyond that, our inexhaustible epiphany of knowledge and meaning. Um, <laughs> can we be sure, please, to be back seated by 11 o'clock? Thank you very much. May I have here a copy. I, I can't remember who it was who asked me for a copy of my opening remarks, but I gave you one. You can't have two. There was somebody else. But would they please get it from me? Could you just wait one minute? Uh, Tish uh, wants to say a word of explanation why there's a cardboard box in the corner of the room. <coughs> the collection box. Yeah.